From the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism, this is Audiophiles. I'm your host, Aaliyah Fisher. Today on Audiophiles, we hear from New Yorkers personally affected by the Israel-Palestine conflict. I have a lot of family and friends that are there that are really terrified, that are dead, that are injured, and this has to stop. The Palestinian coverage is minimal, so we feel silenced. We'll learn about efforts to limit how police and school safety officers use physical force on students in stressful situations. There's nothing that anybody can tell me that would be rationalized um, using restraints on a, on a five-year-old. Then we visit the South Bronx, where one local artist is bringing art accessibility to her community. This is therapy for folks, and this is a therapeutic practice to come and express themselves freely in space with other community members. And what these cute doggies had to say at the Bronx Halloween Dog Parade. My parents put me in this mermaid costume, which I love. All that and more here on Audiophiles. Protests for Palestinian liberation are ongoing since the October 7th attack by Hamas fighters that killed more than 1,400 Israelis and kidnapped more than 200 others. And the continuous Israeli bombing in Gaza and ground invasion has killed more than 8,300 Palestinians, with the death toll continuing to rise every day. Reports of anti-Semitic and Islamophobic hate crimes are up around the country and the world. 32 journalists have been killed in the conflict, including 28 Palestinian and four Israelis. Here in New York, public outcry continues daily. Reporter Alex Crail spoke to New Yorkers about how the conflict is affecting them and their loved ones and sent this report. As a third-generation Jewish New Yorker who has spent time in Israel and Palestine doing human rights reporting, as soon as I heard about the Hamas attack over the weekend of October 7th, I nervously checked social media for what I knew would be massive retaliation against Palestinians and protests worldwide. Here in the city, one of the first rallies I covered was on East 47th Street with Mayor Eric Adams as the headlining speaker. This is the place that our voices must raise and cascade throughout the entire country. A heavy police presence was palpable. Like many other members of the press and public, I had to go through a metal detector and body search. Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul pledged ongoing financial support for Israel. We will give generously. We must reach deep into our pockets because there are those who live far away. But we are united as one family because New York and Israel will always stand together. Meanwhile, the city was full of people who have come out against the ongoing bomb in Gaza and apartheid in Israel. Protests in solidarity with Palestine are heavily policed, but without the stages, lights, or politicians, and they continue almost daily. My parents are American citizens, and they are stuck by the, the borders. My dad is 78, and my mom is 70 years old, and we can't do nothing about it. Over the following days, I attended rallies throughout the city, speaking to people from Palestine who were trying to get their families to safety and those whose families had already died. The ongoing protests call for stopping the bombing of civilians in Gaza. But a ceasefire is just the beginning of their demands. Many people passionately criticized the occupation of Palestine and the Israeli apartheid regime, but were afraid to speak on the record. I have taken every single day to talk as much as I can on social media, and just every single day seeing the grueling images of the children dying, it has been one of the most heartbreaking things ever. And, you know, it's just... 
it's very hard to deal with that and just see that every single day, all the children that are being murdered. So this is what we have to tell Biden and the administration of the U.S. to help the Palestinians because all the speech that I've heard it made me feel as an American Muslim that I don't matter as a Muslim, as a woman. The horrific violence and ongoing bombings of civilians in Palestine brought thousands of New Yorkers into the streets in protest. Two people who did not want to be recorded said that it feels similar to after the September 11th attacks when they did not feel comfortable speaking Arabic in public. My family's terrified, you know. They're trying to stay strong, but, you know, we have a lot going on. We lost family. We got our own problems here, but it just adds on to it. You know, it's already hard as is living as an Arab-American. You get segregated. And while a lot of people don't realize, Hollywood um, basically paints this false picture on Arabic people. So all I ask is for everybody to really open your eyes and... Look what's in front of you. I'm not asking you to pick sides, just look at what's in front of you and determine. The Palestinian coverage is minimal. Right now we're being silenced as just peacefully protesting amongst the streets, so we feel silenced. The UN said that there needs to be a ceasefire to allow for humanitarian aid for the people of Gaza. As of now, there has been no humanitarian aid for the people in terms of food or water, although a few trucks with medical supplies and fuels have been delivered to the Palestinian Authority in Red Crescent. I spoke with my uncle this morning. He said right now they didn't hit his, his house yet, but it's close. And right now they're running out of water. They have no electricity. They shot down the borders in Jordan and stuck over there. The, fa- the family's scared, you know, and it, it's, just, it's just a shame. I have a lot of family and friends that are there um, that are un- really terrified, that are dead, that are injured, and this has to stop. This is not fair. This is not right. The horror and fear for loved ones is experienced by both Palestinians and Israelis. There are Jewish community members who are afraid of the backlash of anti-Semitism that will result. Yeah. Well, I'm an Israeli living in the United States for many, many years. and But I keep going back to Israel repeatedly. And I'm utterly horrified about what's going on over there now. I'm ashamed of my country and ashamed of my people. Uh, I come from an old Zionist family, as many Israelis do, and the price that the Palestinians are paying for our welfare is completely inexcusable. It's just a growing process of greed and land grab that I'm seeing that's quite unnecessary. We could have lived in peace together with one another. I asked Jewish New Yorkers who have family in Israel how it's been affecting them. Those who spoke to me requested anonymity out of fear of retaliation. I'm just tired because, of course, I worry about my family and I'm on the phone with my mom in Israel. And then a siren goes off and she says she has to call me back. And then you wait for her to call you back that everything's okay. I was born in a kibbutz near the border of Gaza. So the kibbutz was attacked and nine people died and... Um, one got kidnapped, and basically the kibbutz was burned down. So for me, it's personal because it's my birthplace. And we should all have empathy for everybody involved and uh, really do some self-reflection on how we behave here when people live very difficult lives in other places. Two Israeli-American citizens of the 200 hostages have been released by Hamas to the Red Cross. They are in stable condition. Meanwhile, Noy Katzman and his brother Chaim Katzman an American-Israeli peace activist killed by Hamas militants in the kibbutz near the Gaza border did not want his death to be used as an excuse for a bombing campaign. All of the things he did, he was for peace. He was a volunteer in Misafariyata. 
where Palestinians are suffering from displacement. This is the sentiment that I've heard shared by many in New York. I'm half Ashkenazi and half Sephardic. And just like knowing the different histories, and I feel like they weaponized or used the, the trauma of the Holocaust to justify the Nakba and um, the displacement of Palestinians. In New York, elected officials' reaction to the weaponization of violence and trauma has taken rather polarizing forms. Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is calling for a ceasefire, while City Council member Ina Vernikoff was arrested for having a gun at a Students for Justice in Palestine rally at Brooklyn College. More than 400 New Yorkers have been arrested by the NYPD in Palestine solidarity rallies in the past two weeks. Reporting for Audiophiles, I'm Alex Krails. A proposed bill seeks to limit how school safety and police officers are allowed to physically restrain students in emotional distress. Reporter Sophia Riddle went to City Hall to talk with advocates, legislators, and parents. Last summer, Paulette Healy was horrified when her son came home and described being slammed into the floor by a paraprofessional teaching assistant. He had a classmate who um, did not want to leave recess at the time and go back into the classroom and, you know, warranted summer. You know, it's like, who wants to go back into a stuffy classroom? Healy's high school-aged son has learning disabilities and was attending a summer program for students that require specialized instruction. Um, and the para who was assigned to that particular student um, was very forceful with that student, put um, hands on that student. And my son, recognizing that that's not how you're supposed to be touched, he ran in to intervene and was pushed onto the ground. Healy was one of many parents and students who testified at a city council hearing last week about legislation that would change how force is used in classrooms. Last school year, students were restrained or put in handcuffs on 280 separate occasions, and some of those students were as young as five years old, according to testimony at the hearing. There's nothing that anybody can tell me that would be rationalized um, using restraints on a, on a five-year-old. Councilmember Diane Ayala is one of the sponsors of the bill which, if passed, would require teachers to call guidance counselors, social workers, and parents to try and de-escalate a situation where a student is in crisis before involving school safety and police officers, who often resort to physically restraining students or using handcuffs. The data that the department shared means that nearly two students are placed in handcuffs for every day of the school year, and many have taken note. This is one student leaving Murray Bergatrum High School in downtown Manhattan. I don't think police should really be involved because I feel like it can make conflicts bigger in some cases. In our school, we have this thing called a mediation. It's basically where they, they get the kids with the problem to talk about like what happened and describe their feelings. I feel like that's kind of effective. And not all students are affected equally. 59% of students who were placed into handcuffs since 2017 were black, according to an analysis by ProPublica and the online publication The City. On top of that, special education schools in New York call 911 on kids in distress at four times the rate of general education schools, according to a data analysis by Advocates for Children. It is our kids, black and brown kids that are getting arrested, who are learning from the age of five that they're already on somebody's radar. Why? These are our babies. The NYPD representatives that testified at the hearing agreed that the statistics were troubling 
but said that the new measures would be too restrictive, especially if there's a situation where a student or teacher was in imminent danger and the school safety officers were legally required to involve a long line of school administrators first. Putting this, putting an inflexible checklist into a law does not help the school safety agents or the officers to achieve the goals of keeping everybody in that school safe. Still, for Healy, the solution requires more trust and less policing. Our schools are no longer safe havens for our children. We can talk about it. We can throw that word around as much as we want. But if our children don't feel that there's people in their school that they trust, then there's no hope for our children. Sponsors say that the vote on the bill has yet to be scheduled as council members wait on more data from the DOE and the NYPD. For Audio Files, I'm Safia Riddle at City Hall. An ancient board game that originates in China with simple rules but a very complex gameplay has risen in popularity around the country, including right here in New York. Yes, I'm talking about Weichi. Or Go. Reporter Kimberly Izar talked to some local players of the game to see what the hype is all about. Every Sunday, about a dozen people come out to the Barnes & Noble in Union Square for a game. We got stones, we got a little 9 by 9 board. This... The gameplay is relatively quiet. Ah, let's see. I'm going to go here. Two players sit across a table. Their eyes are glued to a wooden square board with a grid of lines. The name of the board game that has them hooked is simply called... Go. 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 The Western name given to a 4,000-year-old Chinese board game that has weathered the test of time. The premise of the game is simple, as Jules Kwan tells me. One player gets white stones and one player gets black stones, and the players take turns placing stones on the board. Each player strategically places their stones in order to build territory, and the player who ends up with more territory than their opponent wins. Now that's a good move. Let's see what results from that. One of those players here this afternoon at Barnes & Noble is Peter Armenia. He's wearing a bright yellow shirt with the words, Gotham Go Club. He founded the club 12 years ago and has since encouraged people to spend less time on screens and more time in person. People are spending way too much time on their screens, on their phones, right? So getting out in person and playing Go, interacting with actual human beings, with the physical board and three dimensions, just gets you away from everything else. More than 20 million people around the world play the game. It's particularly popular in China, Korea, and Japan. And the influence of Go is everywhere. For instance, if you zoom out after a game... It starts to look like a QR code. The person who invented QR codes in the 1990s was a Go player. Or you may have even seen it in a movie or a TV show. In the 2013 movie The Beautiful Mind, the mathematician John Nash is challenged to the game by one of his rivals at Princeton University. Nash is going to stun us all with his genius, which is another way of saying he doesn't have the nerve to compete. Scared? Terrified. Mortified. Petrified. Stupefied by you. Despite its global popularity, the game has been rather slow to gain traction in New York City. The size of the city makes it somewhat difficult because someone who's up in the Bronx or out in Brooklyn, you have to come all the way to Manhattan to play. Stephanie Yin is determined to change that. She's a professional player who co-founded the New York Institute of Go in 2017, a school dedicated to all things Go, tucked away in Hell's Kitchen. 
Stephanie says it all started when she realized the city needed a permanent space for people to teach and learn Go. I started only teaching two students, like uh, as a hobby. And then we kept promoting workshops and then open houses in the elementary schools and then like uh, Chinese schools, a culture center. Roughly, I think we have taught at least uh, 2,000 people. On a Saturday afternoon in late October, about 100 people gathered at the school for their inaugural Go Summit. Many kids, but also several older adults. There's no age limit. There's a quiet, buzzing excitement, with crispy sounds of the stones hitting over 40 boards around the room, everyone meticulously planning the next stone they'll add to the board. Nearly a third of the folks here are women, and that's a recent development, something Stephanie was focused on with her school, to introduce the game to new players. When I was studying the game of Go, there are more boys than, than girls, but now, uh, it's a 50-50, I feel like. Mm. Yeah, so I have a class right now. There are five girls, only one boy. <laughs> Go has traditionally been male-dominated. And this goes back 4,000 years to the game's origins in Asia. In China, the game was often played to assert yourself as a culture scholar gentleman. During the Edo period in Japan, all four primary Go schools only had men as players. Stephanie says the opportunity for women professionals remains scarce. I became a pro in China. At that time, we have an age limit, and we have mm-hmm. also have a seat limit. And then every year, there's only two seats for girls to become a pro in the whole country. She remembers how stressful it was to earn that seat. I stayed up, I think, two nights. I couldn't fall asleep. <laughs> but Ying Chan says the game is a mind sport and acts as somewhat of a neutralizer. I, I couldn't really compete in a lot of other fields, but I feel this is one of them. I can be better than most males, make me proud. <laughs> She's a professional player from Shanghai and a regular at many of these meetups. She started playing when she was eight years old after her dad sent her to an after-school program. They have different classes like dance class, chess class, go class, drawing class, calligraphy class. And I liked go, so I picked go. I'm glad I made a decision. For Ying, go is not just a board game. Playing go is a media for me to get exposed to different ideas through meeting different people. For Jules Kwan, it's an entry point for connection, for camaraderie. Playing go has been the most human experience I've ever had in my entire life. The love for the game is infectious, and it's one that Jules is eager to share with every New Yorker. But we're now in discussion with a school district in Queens, um, hoping to bring Go. Hundreds of millions of people across the U.S. are going to be playing Go very, very soon. There's many people that don't know they're going to be Go players. This is Kimberly Izar reporting for Audio Files. You're listening to Audio Files from the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. The fight for fair contracts by SAG-AFTRA members is felt around the country. Members showed up in front of the Netflix and Warner Brothers buildings in late October with enough picketers to cover two full city blocks. This includes not just actors, but also stunt performers, voiceover artists, and background actors. 
These historic strikes, which have spanned over 100 days and have shut down most of the film and television industry, are expected to set a precedent for future entertainment contract negotiations. Amanda Carey McHugh went down to the picket lines to learn more about what they've been fighting for. Um, the AI thing is the biggest is one of the biggest concerns. AI protections. We don't want to be replaced by AI. I can't stress enough the importance of, I think, the AI stuff. We don't want AI to learn from us and be able to just replicate our work. Why would you suddenly pretend that with AI you're allowed to do whatever you want? You just have to compensate people fairly for the use of their likeness or performance. It, it's already hard enough to sort of make a living as an actor with without AI protection and without... Um, you know, reasonable compensation for the streaming revenues, that just looks less and less possible going forward. I mean, I think the obvious is financial security. Getting paid fairly and getting paid on time. There's no middle class in this country anymore. We're working way more than we used to, but making less money than we were. Last year I had to so many times I had to submit for a late payment because they would pay us like a month late, two months late. Right now we're in a cycle where we're making less and less and the top people are making more and more because we're not going to be able to uh, you know, stay in our homes and feed ourselves and pay our student loans and send our kids to school and do all that stuff. When I first moved to L.A., I was making $15 an hour. If I, I was looking around at side jobs during the strike, most minimum wage is about $15 to $17 an hour. This is a decade later. Uh, the biggest priority for me would be the streaming residuals. Just better contracts and uh, uh, just better residuals. Uh, residuals. Uh, it's got to be residuals. Uh, it's the one thing that allows us to build a life off of this thing that we love to do and we love to train for. But the thing is, we're not working all the time. So we need something that stretches the gap that allows us to keep, you know, striving for excellence. I did a movie in Thailand for a month and it was in the top 10 for a really long time. And my residuals are so sad. Making sure that we have a fair residual structure where everybody at the top is sharing with everybody at the bottom and in the middle. I guess it would be the residual basis. For stunts, I think one of the things that we, we do focus on the most is that residual income. Um, because we have a tendency to, to bounce from show to show. My life would improve just for the uncertainty of uh, work, since it's freelance work, and if you get injured and you have a residual base to rely on, I mean, also, you know, I would love to buy a house. Uh, stunt performers in a general could, general could retire. So I think it would improve in getting me back to work and not worrying about, like, where the money's coming from. Because it's so competitive and because so many people want to be here, there's that mentality of, like, well, if you don't want it, we'll go on to the next person. I think that deep down they're aware on some level that we're all artists and that we all do this because we love doing it, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be paid for our hard work. But I think the studios honestly are really greedy and they're hoping that they can just pay as little as possible because we're not asking for a lot, we're just asking for enough to survive because really most of us make under, what is it, 26000 Right now I've applied, I'm applying for food stamps, I'm on Medicaid, all the different things. That's most of us are at that level. I think honestly we gave them this contract for new media as a grace and they got a little greedy with how generous it was and i think we underestimated how quickly the internet and streaming was going to expand in general so they've got you know the golden goose laying the egg and they don't want to share any of the golden omelets but that's just not how the world works not the way this modern economy is and inflation and it's just too much of a strain on your artist 
You need artists in the world to cope with the way the world is. You can't get rid of us. Those were voices of SAG-AFTRA members at a recent picket line in Manhattan. They spoke to Audiophiles reporter Amanda Carey McHugh. A recently published New York Daily News article details the cover-up of an inmate's suicide in the Manhattan prison, nicknamed the Tombs. The article revealed that the corrections officers responsible for this death falsified documents in an effort to cover up any misconduct. Graham Raymond is the reporter behind the article and recently published a book titled Rikers, an Oral History. Now, he joins me in the studio via phone call to talk about this unfortunate chapter in NYC incarceration. Hi, Graham. Hi, thanks uh, Thanks so much for having me. I just want to note that my uh, co-author on the Rikers book is Ravain Blau. Absolutely. And I have the book right here with me in studio. Thank you so much for that. Um sure. So first of all, can you tell us how you reported this piece for the New York Daily News? Who was Anthony Scott and what happened to him? Uh, Anthony Scott uh, was a detainee uh, in, uh, he'd been arrested um, back in 2021. And uh, he was transported to a holding pen in the Manhattan courts, which is overseen by correction officers. Um, And, uh, you know, he had a history of suicidal suicide attempts and uh, mental diagnosed mental illness. And uh, he took uh, some shoelaces and stood on, uh, tied them around the toilet and, and hung himself. And um, he was actually out of sight of the video when he did this, but there were officers immediately around his area, including there was a desk officer literally Right, right there, and um, uh, he had jammed something in the locking mechanism. So w- when they noticed, uh, he he um, they had some trouble getting in to the cell. But when they, they got in, he he was or he he was in very bad shape, and he died a few days later. Right. Um, but in the aftermath, the officers the officers are supposed to do uh, rounds every fifteen minutes, and uh, what an internal uh, DOC investigation found was that they uh, they had set they had written in logbooks that where they record what they do uh, that they had done these these fifteen minute uh, checks but they had not in fact done them right and um you mentioned these checks it seems like they should have like instances in place to protect these people uh, do you find that these cases of these suicides are indicative of a larger trend maybe. Well, there's over the past two years uh, since there there have been a lot of deaths in the jails since uh, beginning in 2021. There were 16, then 19 in 2022, and nine so far this year. And one of the recurring themes is that officers aren't doing their rounds, or are found to be not doing their rounds. Um, and so there's either a delay in medical care, or the person is is so far gone by the time they get them that get to them that that uh, they can't be saved or that um, uh, they were already showing signs of, of uh, either uh, taking narcotics or, or suicidal ideation that, that had they acted, had they been vigilant about their rounds, they would have spotted the problem and, and, uh, and, you know, tried to deal with it. Right. 
And going to your book for a second, uh, it seems you give plenty of first-person accounts from inside the Rikers facility, like a narrative format almost. I'm curious, what was your approach in telling these stories the way that you did? Well, we, we, we interviewed 135 people who had either been incarcerated in Rikers or worked there uh, and tried to cast as wide in it as possible. And we put the, we, we, instead of doing a conventional history, you know, sort of Graham and Ravain's take on the history of Rikers, we decided to, to put the voices of the people who had been through it uh, front and center, take ourselves out of it a little bit, or as, rather, as much as we could. And, and just, you know, a lot of these folks have never gotten to tell their stories. Um, these are very intimate accounts, um, stuff that they, that happened, you know, it could be two decades ago that they still remember in this very, um, in minute detail because it affected them so much. So we just thought it was a more powerful way to tell the story of, of the history of Rikers. Yeah. And very quickly, Graham, uh, do you believe transparency in the prison system has improved or gotten worse over the years through your reporting? <sighs> That's a broad question. Um, I would say that under this administration, this mayoral administration, uh, uh, DOC has taken a whole series of steps to reduce transparency. Um, I also think that the very location of Rikers Island, you know, it's a basically a closed environment accessible only by a bridge, and you can only get on there if you have a specific reason to be there. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, adds to this, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a closed environment where, and you know, if you're in that environment, it's, it's very tempting to be less transparent. You know, it just cuts down on the number of problems. Absolutely. Unfortunately, stuff comes out anyway. So, you know, I, I don't think the strategy is that effective, frankly. And we're we're headed toward a receiver, which means an outside takeover of the of the jail system. So um, I think the 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 lack of transparency is a big factor in why that why there's momentum toward toward that. Thank uh, you so much, Graham, for speaking to us today on the show. Graham Ryan is a reporter at the New York Daily News. They are our love bugs and companions. They are our pets, our family, and they make life better. When we face unexpected challenges, so do our pets. That's why we're on a mission to support people and their pets. Whether donating a bag of kibble, sharing an Instagram post of a lost cat, or welcoming a foster pet into your home, every bit of kindness counts. Visit petsandpeopletogether.org to learn how to be a helper in your community. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back. You're still listening to Audio Files. This past week marked the 11th anniversary of Hurricane Sandy. The powerful so-called 100-year storm resulted in the deaths of 44 New York City residents. Almost 70,000 residential units were damaged, and the economic toll was estimated at $19 billion, according to city data. So what have government officials been doing to prevent severe flooding and to mitigate the effects of major storms? Reporter Elias Guerra has been asking that question, and he joins me now in the studio for more. Elias, welcome to Audiophiles. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So walk me through exactly what happened during Hurricane Sandy. So Hurricane Sandy hit New York City at the end of October in 2012. Thousands of people were without power in Manhattan. South Brooklyn, the Rockways, and Staten Island, areas that are close by the water, were hit especially hard. And there's some areas in Staten Island that at this point have been completely abandoned, 
because the government has decided that those people's homes are just too dangerous for people to live there. There's other places like Broad Channel and Jamaica Bay where they've raised the houses so that when there are heavy floods, the people's homes won't be completely submerged. And the problem is that climate change is going to make these storms more frequent and more powerful, and we can't really predict when the next one will hit. Once in a century at this point is not once in a century. And as temperatures rise, the air can hold more moisture, so that means rain events are going to be getting more and more powerful. Right. So what exactly are New York City officials doing to prevent future storms, which you say are becoming more frequent and powerful? So the problem with the storms is really for New York City is the flooding. And there's different types of flooding. There's storm surges like from Sandy where ocean water is just being, it's just massive amounts of ocean water being pushed onto the land. There's also sunny day flooding, which is kind of similar to storm surges in that it's ocean water, but that just can happen on a sunny day. And that's just from high tides, which happens twice a day. And when the moon is right, it's going to pull the, the water onto the streets and areas like Broad Channel and Jamaica Bay. They, they just have that really regularly. And then there's also flooding from rainfall, like we just saw at the end of September. And that was about seven to eight inches of rain that just came really fast, but it brought the city to a halt. And just down the street from me in Williamsburg, there was two feet of water in, in one area. So one thing that New York City is doing to prepare is building up its, its green infrastructure which is really just plants or any areas that break up the concrete so that water can be absorbed into the ground. And that prevents it from going into the sewers or people's basements. Another project they're doing is the Blue Belt Project out in Staten Island, where they've created these little reservoirs, which are actually really beautiful. And they kind of look like little ponds, but during heavy rain events, they can hold a lot of water and that prevents flooding. The most extreme approach though that the city is taking is literally trying to build the city up higher. In lower Manhattan, for example, they tore up East River Park. And right now there's bulldozers and construction where I used to play soccer. And not all of the, the neighbors and residents around there are happy about that. One of the areas, as I mentioned, that where there's a lot of sunny day flooding from ocean tides is, is around Jamaica Bay. And you've been reporting a lot on Jamaica Bay. What makes that area particularly prone to flooding? The thing about Jamaica Bay is you can see what the city used to look like. It used to be wetlands in a lot of areas, but we've built on top of that. And that's part of the reason why there's so much flooding, because these are areas that were naturally meant to flood. They, that's how they evolved. And that's why they have all these tidal floods around the bay in, in Broad Channel. And there's even in Canarsie, because of sea level rise, there's been a foot of sea level rise in the last century. And so there's houses in Canarsie, where the basements are literally sinking because the ground is, is so wet. Oh, my God. That sounds like a nightmare. What about federal officials? What have they been doing to mitigate flooding? First of all, who are they and what kind of work do they do? So the big agency that deals with that, at least in the United States, is the Army Corps of Engineers. And that's what it sounds like. It is what it sounds like. They're part of the Army and they're responsible for a lot of big infrastructure projects in the country, especially related to flood protection and hydropower. Their track record isn't perfect, and they have this tendency to, to really build these big muscular projects. But they also do a lot of restoration work in Jamaica Bay to, to build up the salt marshes. They deposit sand on them. And then they also do a lot of dredging in the, in the New York area, including Jamaica Bay. But part of the problem with that increases the height of the tides. 
which contributes to the flooding. So it's kind of complicated. And I just want to leave you with this interview I did with Don Reby, who's the guardian of Jamaica Bay for the American Littoral Society. And he really is the guardian of the bay. Nature doesn't have coffee breaks, doesn't have meetings, discussions, doesn't have to get funding. Nature is relentless. And the problem is that the whole bay is spoken for. So all around the bay, there's development. So if my house and all these houses weren't here, there'd be marshes here. And as the tide got higher over time, the marshes would move. But they can't move. Everything's bulkheaded, seawalled, developed. So the marshes are stuck where they are. And that's a, that's a problem. Parts of New York City that are flooding will probably continue to flood as long as we ignore the problem. And really trying to utilize and work with nature and not against it, because we know that just doesn't turn out well. Reporter Elias Guetta of Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. Thank you for coming on Audio Files. Thank you. The New York City Marathon is the largest marathon in the world. As runners descend upon the city to compete this Sunday, others run just for fun. During the pandemic, running groups saw a 13% increase in popularity, according to a Nielsen Sport report that surveyed runners from 10 countries. Reporter Sagina Soresta profiled a local running group in Queens and asked what brings them together. What races are everybody running? The Staten Island. Who's running Staten Island? It's cold and windy outside, and a group of runners are gathering in Jackson Heights, Queens. They've come together for a community run organized by Queens Distance Runners, also known as QDR. QDR runs all over Queens, and the Jackson Heights group meets every Monday and Wednesday evening. These casual events are a hub for local runners to meet up in their own neighborhood. Andrew Hayduk, a new Queens resident, has been running with QDR for two weeks. I'm new to the neighborhood, and I just moved here from Brooklyn. And I moved here, and somebody recommended this group, so I joined the group um, two weeks ago, and I've been running with them since. I think I've been on, like, five runs now, at least with them, and it's great. Like, it's super fun. The people are really supportive. I only started doing the community runs, um, like the Jackson Heights one, this spring. This is Kat Rockman from Jackson Heights. Um, It is great to have other running friends in the neighborhood. Um, I've met some really cool people. QDR was created by Kevin Montalvo and his wife Maria Wong in 2013. It began as a mission to create a Queens Marathon and has now grown into a hybrid running club and nonprofit. Jackson Heights group leader Samantha Chow says QDR's mission and goal has expanded through the years. And it kind of grew bigger to wanting to just encourage more people to run. So they started little group chapters across Queens so that not just like competitive runners can run, but just encouraging the whole community, like anybody, to get out and be active. We've come together as strangers at first, and then we really have become a really good group of friends and a community who is there to help each other out. You know, we will, you know, offer to drop something over to a friend's house if they're sick, or we'll organize like um, a group karaoke or go for a bushwalk. After the run, people gather at a local park to catch their breath and make future plans. I get bored very easily. Yeah. <laughs> um, my cat, I brought up a good idea is that 
Although Queen's Marathon never happened, QDR brings the running community together on a more intimate level. After running? For audiophiles, I'm Sujina Shrasta. From the Craig Newmark School of Journalism, this is Audiophiles. Advocates for the arts say accessibility for artistic expression is vital to underserved communities. South Bronx resident Leslie Mejia is providing this accessibility in her community with free pop-out and paint events. Reporter Ashley Reed takes a trip to Mejia's studio in the Mott Haven community to learn more about these free, fun, and therapeutic sessions. So we got like oil pastel, we got watercolor. So this is the Bronx Art Sanctuary. Um, the reason it's called the Art Sanctuary is because um, a, what is a sanctuary? A sanctuary is a safe space. A sanctuary is a place where you can come and just be. My name is Leslie, Les, I'll go by Les as well. Um, I currently work within higher education as well as uh, community organizing and uh, cultural curating as we call it these days. I am a South Bronx native of Dominican descent. I have been living in the Bronx for 29 years. Oh my gosh, I'm old. <laughs> since, um, since I was born, born and raised in the Bronx, um, you know, super proud of uh, being where I'm from. I am an educator. Uh, I have an educational background in social work and wellness. Personally, never thought that I wanted to do like traditional talk therapy. Traditional talk therapy doesn't work for everyone. And um, for a lot of us, when we are feeling stressed, when we are feeling, um, you know, overwhelmed or overcome with a certain emotion, sometimes, um, you know, having that opportunity to write, having the opportunity to paint, having the opportunity to build something or break something is what we need um, to let those emotions out. And especially in the black and brown community, because I think in general, right, regardless of anything else, um, mental health has always been so stigmatized within our community and um, a way to, you know, lean into and prioritize our mental health and our mental wellness is to learn more about what works for us. My work started as a, a free um, and donation-based uh, community program called Pop Out and Paint. Um, and this came, uh, you know, right after I got my social work license. I was able to bring all of my art supplies to a local park and invite the community to come and paint with me and express themselves. I put it all in bags, take it with me to the park, put it in a little carrito, and you know, we work it out. <laughs> I, I quickly realized um, that this is therapy for folks, and this is a therapeutic practice to come and express themselves freely in space with other community members. It's super important to make sure it's as that art and art accessibility is um, something that we're putting at the forefront. The goal around it is for the community to be able to get all the resources that they need, um, regardless of 
you know, finances. Accessibility has always been in the forefront. Um, you know, we've always been donation-based, always will hopefully continue to be free and for the love because we want to make sure that, um, you know, everyone gets a little bit of um, the healing that comes from art making. That piece was reported and produced by Ashley Reed. The Staten Island Railroad is getting some shiny new train cars. But is it what Staten Islanders really need? Cesar Nicolescu and Samuel Turvey from the think tank Rethink NYC are here in the studio to talk about it with us. Hey, guys. How are you guys? Good. Okay, so first, um, I want to start with you, Sam, because you mentioned you're a native of Staten Island, correct? Correct. So when did you leave and what are your hopes and expectations for these new subway cars? Well, I left in the late 60s, but I still serve as a uh, trustee on an um, art museum on Staten Island. My dad lived there for quite a long time. And, you know, as to these rail cars, we think they're an incremental improvement where they really should be thinking about a lot more uh, in terms of bringing mass transit to Staten Island. So um, we don't want to begrudge them some of what this uh, uh, brings, but we really think that, that Staten Island needs a much better transit system. Mm-hmm. So what has been your experience with the subway cars in the past? Well, the subway cars haven't been on Staten Island, and there have been plans over the decades to think about connecting subways to Staten Island. So now what they're doing is they're giving them subway cars, but not the connectivity that subway or other kinds of rail would bring to Staten Island. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a strange gift. Um, you, you know, we think that they should be finding ways to connect Staten Island's transit to, um, to, to, you know, to the ultimate cores of New York city <clears throat> and, by giving them the subway cars without that connectivity, it's a it's a little bit I I I I don't I forget what you'd call it, but it's a strange gift. Right, and I can imagine some Staten Islanders. What are their thoughts on the trains? Like, what are they saying? Well, my friend Vincent Bellafiore, who's a retired principal and transit advocate on Staten Island, really thinks they need to think bigger, uh, and so. Um, he, he finds the present system of poultry showing, and uh, I think he'd really rather see some connectivity along the North Shore uh, to some of the transit options in New Jersey and and more and better transit on Staten Island. You mentioned they need to think bigger. Chazar, you're the senior urban di- designer, right? Mm-hmm. What is your take on the new design of the cars? Um, I think the new design of the cars is appropriate for uh, the subway system in New York City as a whole. Uh, Staten Island's uh, portion of the subway system isn't really part of the subway system. Um, It's a commuter railroad that feeds into the ferry. Um, It runs between 15, every 15 minutes and half an hour with one train. So that's a a frequency that's more similar to what you'd get on uh, Long Island Railroad, Metro North, um, uh, NJ Transit. and the gift of these subway cars creates the appearance, the feeling that it's part of the subway system, but only superficially without any added connectivity. And there are other ways to spend money, especially when it comes to uh, to the type of cars that you're using for rail and increasing the frequency with things like automated um, cars in which um, 
the the price of conductors and engineers isn't as um, as much of a barrier for more trains per hour, um, having better synchronization with the ferry, uh, having a bus network that synchronizes with individual stops along the the Staten Island Railroad. Those are all ways of improving the service and the experience much more than simply superficially having a car that looks like subway cars in the rest of the system, which is, again, so different from the Staten Island Railroad. Right. You're saying a lot about it It kind of resembles the Long Island Railroad or similar to those things, but what can riders actually expect with this new railroad in the in Staten Island? Um, well, uh, w- with the new cars, they can expect... Uh, uh, as they're being uh, as they're being uh, given now um, uh, by the MTA, uh, they can definitely expect a cleaner, more modern uh, experience uh, once they get into the car, but uh, not necessarily better service, which is what we want to provide. Sam, do you have any any thoughts? What can riders expect with these new train cars? Well, I think, you know, subway cars are based on a higher percentage of the population standing than sitting. So I, I think Chazar is, you know, we're pointing at us, you're giving people a subway-like experience on something that's a brackish, more of a commuter rail at this point. We, we'd like to see the connectivity of the subways extended to Staten Island that would take some doing and it would likely need to go um, uh, through the Arthur Kill and, and not under the harbor. But we would like to see that, and we're bullish on Staten Island. You know, Staten Island, um, there were a lot of expressways that were supposed to go through the middle of Staten Island. And actually, when I was a kid on Staten Island, we protested Robert Moses and were one of the few groups that won. They didn't build those through the uh, High Rock and the Green Belt back there. And Staten Island actually is going to be one-third parkland when all those parks are done. And it's going to become a nicer and nicer place. And uh, I think that as part of that transition, they should be really thinking about modernizing and investing in transit. It has to you know, follow with other priorities, but but we're bullish on, on positive things happening at Staten Island, but we really think they need to spend more time thinking on connectivity uh, and, 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 and doing more than, as, as Chazar used the word superficial, doing more than that sort of thing. We applaud investments in rail there, but we think there's there's more thinking and more investment that needs to take place. And this question's for both of you. Uh, based on your experience, do you think there are components that should have been considered more? Um, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, there have been a lot of studies uh, done um, uh, to the Staten Island Railroad. Um, the biggest uh, piece of the puzzle is what to do with what used to be uh, the North Shore branch of the railroad, which was deactivated decades ago. Uh, but that would provide connectivity to uh, many underserved communities. And then, as Sam was hinting towards, there are other possible connections that can be made to um, to rail in uh, New Jersey, which could create a direct connection to Midtown eventually with the proper investments. But to think like this, you have to uh, look at transportation as part of a uh, integral regional system and not just focus on um, piecemeal approaches to uh, one subway line, another subway line, and in this case, the Staten Island Railroad as it is. Right. And and I endorse what Chazer says. My grandfather was a longshoreman at a pier that used to be next to the Staten Island Ferry, and that North Shore Railroad was a B&O, Baltimore and Ohio Lincoln. Mm-hmm. He certainly hasn't been with us for a while, but both of us would be very happy to see that activated as commuter rail. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. That was Sam Turvey and 
Cesar Nicolescu. <laughs> if you want to check out more what they do, you can check their website at RethinkNYC.com. The Bronx Night Market is a popular destination for eaters since it opened in 2018. The New York Times has called it the city's best outdoor food fair, and the monthly market remained open during the pandemic. But its future is in doubt. Reporter Christian Nazario attended the market's October season finale and sent this report. The Bronx Night Market has been a haven for the borough's vendors during its run. One of them is Sandra Cruz of Sassy Fish Cakes. This is only her second straight year at the night market, and she tells me why Fordham Plaza is the ideal location for her business. Exposure, right? Um, exposure at, in different demographics, um, different people come out, and so it's ex- exposure that we probably would not have had if we were not traveling throughout the different boroughs to do these food festivals. The night market is making its unfortunate exit after what co-founder Marco Shalma said were many concerns with safety for the people and vendors. After the pandemic, there's been a lot of like deterioration and facilitation in the Bronx. You know, I think like the, the, the buying from the city is even less than what it used to be pre-pandemic. Basically, we're talking about like infrastructure, whether it's sanitation, maintenance, security, all the stuff that kind of makes people feel comfortable and safe. Word spread that the Shalma isn't planning to bring the market back to this location after the October season finale. Many people and vendors came out for the first time to be part of the final night market. Ryan Berger came from Manhattan to enjoy the market's festivities. He wants to see it return in some way in the future. It should definitely continue. We, we need more stuff like this. You know, it's good for the community to have these places to gather and, you know, support local vendors, local businesses, local creators. It's important for, you know, both the people that are, you know, selling and buying. The market isn't just about food vendors. There are also stalls from companies like the Spice Theory, which is all about healthy ingredients for Caribbean cuisine. Dr. Cory Amos is the founder and CEO. The night market has really helped me to just hone in on my brand and share the values of our company with everyone, showcasing that you can enjoy Caribbean flavors and cuisine without sacrificing your health with our low-sodium products. So most important for me is just being able to build the community. Like crews of Sassy Fish Cakes, Dr. Corey also wants to see the market return in some capacity in the future. But is it something that founder Shalma has even thought about yet? You know, if you ask me this question about a week and a half or two weeks ago, I would probably say no because we really kind of got into a point like a breaking point. But after seeing thousands of comments of how much this meant to people, we kind of realized that we have to stay open-minded to the possibility of doing something. Reporting for audio files from the final Bronx Nine Market for now. This is Christian Azario. Although Halloween just ended, Halloween dog parades are some of the most popular festivities around the city. Audiophiles reporter Rachel Goldman and I went to a dog costume contest at Van Cortland Park in the Bronx and got the inside scoop on what the four-legged contestants were wearing. With some help from their human companions, of course. Hello, my name is Penny, a.k.a. Penny Girl. For this Halloween 2023, we decided to come as an authentic Dominican breakfast, which is called Los Tres Golpes, which means in English, the three hits. Now, the three hits are salami, which is what I am dressed as, a long salami. And my mom is an egg and white cheese. And my dad is wearing a green platano, which makes the mango. So this is a 
uh, an international costume, and it took me a long time to get used to being a salami, but we did it for the culture. This is Rudy, and he's dressed today as a ladybug. Rudy loves to sniff, so this is Snifferama for him. He's very happy to meet other dogs. He's got a couple of dogs' best friends, but they've passed on, unfortunately. So he's in the market for a new best friend. I hope today he finds one. So this is Uma, and Uma woke up this morning, and she was stretched out across the whole bed. <laughs> Definitely a thief. What crime did she commit to get into that? Uh, she's a cheese thief. <laughs> I'm Jason. Me, my mommy, and daddy are Jason. <laughs> Um, I'm having a good day. Um, all the doggies look cute. <laughs> They're cute, but mine is the best. <laughs> My only competition is Joker. <laughs> I am Bugsy. Well, I woke up and uh, I was a little bit of a butt. I was uh, loud and so we took, I went out for a walk and then uh, uh, my trainer showed up and I got taught today about uh, leash manners and how you greet people. And then my parents put me in this mermaid costume, which I love, and I came down to the park to meet all of these different dogs and all of these different people. And it's been very fun, but I'm mostly wondering why I can't go in the dog run and run around. Uma, the little cheese thief dressed as a bandit, won the small dog category for the costume contest. This story was reported by Rachel Goldman. That's our show for today. Thanks for tuning into Audio Files. I'm your host, Aaliyah Fisher. This show was produced by Christian Nazario. Nicholas Magrino is the associate producer. Our managing producer is Ashley Reed. Reporters for this episode were Rachel Goldman, Kimberly Izar, Amanda Carey McHugh, Alex Crails, Sophia Riddle, and Sajina Sharesta. Our editors are Maggie Freeling and Richard Yeh. Our sound engineers are Amber Watson and Chad Bernhard. This episode featured music by Jason Shaw, Komiku, Infraction, and Benjamin Tiso. Thank you to our guests Graham Raymond, Elias Guerra, Samuel Turvey, and Cesar Nicolescu. You can listen to more episodes of Audiophiles on audiophilespodcast.com.